What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, sitting with me is Tom Core. He is the CMO at Greenfly. This was a really cool conversation. We talk about Tom's journey. He has spent time in sales, operations, marketing, product, and he really has brought that all together now at Greenfly. And then we get into a discussion about value-based pricing. And I think this is really useful for anyone who is pricing a product and also how to understand your value within an organization even. So taking a mindset of just talking about value and understanding what it is and then applying it to your job, applying that to your outward pricing. I really, really enjoyed this. So I think you all will as well. Before we get into it, as always, we put on the show here at Cave. We're a marketing agency based out of LA. We help companies create social media content, ads, strategies, etc. So if you need any help in those departments, head over to cavesocial.com, hit the contact us. We'd love to help you out. Alrighty, sit back, relax, enjoy. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the show today. Joining me from Greenfly is Tom Coor. He is there, CMO, and he's actually at a Hermosa Beach, not too far from us here in Venice, Marina del Rey. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. Happy to be here, Jordan. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on and talk through, well, we're going to get into a couple of things in value-based pricing being one of them. But before we do that, I want to pass the mic to you and hear your story. Did you always plan to be a marketer? Was it accidental? How? What was the path you took to get where you're at today with Greenfly? I never planned to be a marketer. It was entirely accidental. I found myself really interested in marine biology. So that's what I majored in in college. I went to UC Santa Barbara and had a fantastic time learning about the ocean and fish and ecosystems and mariculture and realized somewhere between sophomore and junior year that a job in marine biology was going to leave me making about $18,000 a year for the rest of my life, and I would still need to get a PhD. So I said, all right, I'm going to start exploring other things. Did some research. My first job out of school was as a telemarketer. I thought, hey, I'll get into sales because salespeople make a lot of money. Uh, after being a starving college student, I think money was important to me at that time. So I was doing uh, cold calling and dialing for dollars and did a really good job at that. was quickly promoted to inside sales where I was selling a lower price point product on the phone and then outside sales. And this was all for a, a software company. We were selling uh, library automation software. So really exciting market. We helped libraries put all of their books into a computer, which was you know fairly novel at the time. But I realized that through that journey that there were other things besides sales that no one told me about or told me really why they were interesting. So I looked at marketing and I looked at the product group and I found them both pretty fascinating. And I said, marketing's pretty cool because it's really a strategic look at what the company's doing. And instead of a one-on-one -on -one situation where I can make a one-on-one -on -one difference, I can actually make a difference for the business. And I love the strategy aspect of it. So I pivoted from software and got a job with a, a branding company and worked with consumer packaged goods. And I learned all about marketing, advertising, product placement, fun stuff with uh, packaged tea and iced tea and coffee in supermarkets. So very different. And then realized that CPG wasn't really as exciting as software or computers or the internet in general. So I got my next job was as a marketer for a software company. And that quickly turned into a product management role. So I was working on consumer product that the product manager left like about a month after I got there. And I took on 
managing the product, whatever that was, because I had no idea at the time. And it turns out I was pretty good at it and rose through the ranks. And a couple of companies later was director of product and then a VP of product. And then at a company called stamps.com, where we created really the, one of the first SaaS systems, we called it ASP at the time, also moved into operations. And how does a product then translate itself into a service inside a company? This was pretty revolutionary because products were sold on a shelf and then you had a maybe you had a phone support system but here we're actually running a service in real time we had to get the data from our secure vault where we were printing postage to the customer support systems we had to build a data warehouse we had to put a crm system and all of these things that the company actually didn't put in place before we went live with the software product so it was a lot of learning on the job and we did things very very quickly and from there i took my product knowledge and my business knowledge, operations knowledge, and started the international business unit for stamps.com. So it was pretty exciting building out a replica, a small replica of the company in Europe. Our customers in Europe weren't end customers. We were selling and repackaging the stamps.com technology for posts outside of the US. So not the US post office, but Royal Mail, the Dutch Post, German Post, et cetera. And I landed on this really cool thing called business to business and selling directly to businesses, which I really did enjoy. I got to work with outside salespeople, selling at a much larger scale, doing conferences, events, and speaking. And that interaction, I really loved. So went from B2C to B2B and then continued down more of a hybrid role where marketing was managing product as well. So I did that for a few years. Now, product is a very separate entity, usually in a SaaS or software company. But back then, it was a blended sort of role. So the first company I joined went public and then was acquired. Stamps.com went public and just recently went private again. So it's still around, which is nice to see that that technology lasted so long. And since then, I've been with two other companies that got acquired. One of them was a fairly large uh, software company that was acquired by IBM. And after that, transaction happened, I really started working with very small startup companies in both marketing product and really go to market strategy. How do you realize that you have a minimum viable product? How do you do enough research to figure out who's going to buy it? How do you price it? All of these questions that entrepreneurs have when they have an idea and they're trying to bring it to market, they really don't understand marketing or go to market strategy or distribution strategy or how to deal with an outside sales team, never mind automate all of the processes related to sales marketing and let's say revenue operations. And I want to lean in there for a sec, just to jump in, because I think you said something really, really interesting about like putting it all together, right? When entrepreneurs get there and they're like, okay, how do I price it, manage a sales team, put together product, what is product marketing? And then do all that. I feel like your experience and kind of bouncing from big company to starting in sales then product and then doing marketing and ops and putting it all together, really, I'm assuming now has equipped you at Greenfly, which is, I saw there's about 45 employees at Greenfly. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we just hit 50. So yeah. Okay, cool. Got a good growth trajectory now. Do you feel like all of those experiences and working across the different verticals really has brought um, a lot of tools to your toolkit when it comes to sitting in the CMO seat at Greenfly? Absolutely. Of like understanding the sales mindset and everything? Yeah you know, manage different departments along the way. So I've actually gotten to manage an engineering team. I've gotten to manage a sales team. I manage, you know, inside sales, sales development, business development teams, 
So yeah, it's really critical as you grow in scope to really understand what the value and incentive is for other departments to motivate them to get to do things, to cooperate. And that's really a product management skill. If you're a product manager, you have no one reporting to you and you have to work with every department to get them to be coordinated, to do a product launch or to figure out how to prioritize feature sets. So unless you're really good at influencing people, you really aren't going to be a successful product manager with a and when I say product manager, I mean product manager with a big P, like a product owner, right? You can do parts of product management, but to be a product owner, you really have to understand how the organization functions, even at a smaller level with the teams that you're working with. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that evolution, right? From being maybe a practitioner where you're just focused on your job, your task, to then getting a higher level view to say, oh, my task impacts that person's task impacts that person's task and it's all getting wrapped together. And we're all, it's really like, I always make the comparison to sports. Like if you can do your job on a football field or something, but if you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, it becomes a lot harder to, you know, all go in the same direction. So I definitely sure. love hearing, hearing that. And I think it's so important for people who want to get to that, you know, that CMO's chair is to gotta understand, hey, sales, how do we arm the sales team? How are we helping the sales team? How are we minimizing requests on the customer service team? How are we helping product? Like all of that stuff, the nitty gritty, I think is so important to account for at the, the CMO chair. Do you feel like, or in your experience, is it easy to take all that, wrap it up and communicate it with the other executives? Do Have you found that the other executives in your experience have typically been like, pro marketing. I know some organizations that I've just talked to have dealt with have been like the CMO spends half their time convincing the other executives that marketing is important and other organizations are all in. So I'm just curious on your experience with that. There's no one answer to that. You're absolutely right. The executive teams, leadership teams vary very differently in what they view as marketing or good marketing versus bad marketing or marketing in general. A lot of it starts with the CEO. If the CEO understands the value of marketing, he will generally support or reinforce marketing as an important part of a structure. If he doesn't value it or understand it, there's where you get into lower functioning executive teams, we'll say. But there's also executive maturity. So if you're dealing with executives that have done this before, that have been the head of a department before, and they have that experience, it's much different experience than working with an executive that's just promoted to their head of department and really doesn't understand how to interact with other departments at that level. So the, the most important thing from an executive standpoint is building trust, right? That's really the baseline ladder. If you don't trust the people you're working with, who are in the same room every week for your executive meeting or three times a week, it's really hard to get a lot done because you're always trying to cover your ass. You're always trying to promote what you're doing, explain why it's valuable. You're doing a lot of education rather than trusting the person to be an expert in their role and say, I trust that you know what this is. I trust you're going to get that done as fast as possible. You're not trying to stonewall me or have your own agenda, right? So there's an awful lot of politicking that can go on if there's not a lot of trust in each other. But part of that trust is, is you have to be able to convey that you're an expert in your field. And so that comes with a little bit of time, but it also comes with proof and it comes with metrics. So being able to show, hey, I said I was going to do this. I actually did it, first of all. And here are the results. Speaks volumes. Right? And you can do that in a month. You can do it in two months. You can build trust very rapidly if you're taking a very methodical approach to whatever you're setting out to do. And that's actually one of the things I 
learned being a biology major was doing experiments requires you to create a theory. It requires you to socialize that theory. Has anyone ever done this before? Here's what we expect when we do this. And when we do it, are we measuring it in an objective way where everyone can trust the measurement and the results actually match up with my theory or did they not, right? So it's not my opinion at the end of the day. It is scientific proof that this worked because we set it up in a very scientific fashion, I guess. So that's what I would suggest for anyone who's trying to really make an impact in their organization is start small, start with small proof points that you know that you can show results on. And then when you say you're going to deliver something by a certain date, deliver it. Like little things like that go a long way to building trust. It's not, it's not that hard. We can all do that, right? It's all within our power. Totally. It's one of those things where you can earn trust in a couple of months, but you can also lose it very quickly if you don't hit deadlines. So I am with you. It's, hey, if we have everybody rowing in the same direction, it makes things so much easier. And that comes down to trust, like you said. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit. And I want to talk about, and you said it there a little bit about setting up pricing. And I always find entrepreneurs when I talk with them and myself, we just did a bid and I was like, uh, you know, what do we charge? And that question comes up all the time. And the, I don't want to say the, the first inclination is for people to, you know, in professional services is to go, oh, time for money, right? X amount, I'm a whatever, $100 an hour. And they do that. I'm sick and that's okay because if, I hear this like every day. Well, this is what it <laughs> costs us to do it. So let's just mark it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's something when I started off, we were, oh man, we were doing like, 75 bucks an hour or something that was just like, I was like 24 years old in doing that. And we were doing marketing services. And then you go in and like, we work with startups and okay, how do we, especially B2B, you know, enterprise sales. Okay. How do you price that? And a lot of times people are just pulling pricing, like just pulling it out of thin air and then seeing if it works. And I want to talk a little bit about changing perspective to value-based pricing and understanding what that is. Because for the listeners who are here right now, maybe, you know, they're pricing a new product or maybe they have a, they're starting their own freelance side hustle. Maybe they're looking to come in and they have their own company, whatever that may be. I'll pass the mic to you to just talk about what is value-based pricing and how do you, you know, start to do it? How do you actually go out and set that pricing model when you're putting together anything, professional services, software? whatever. This is one of the things that made me fall in love with software, right? You are selling something that you can easily replicate, right? Whether it is on a floppy disk or a USB drive, or you're delivering it over the internet through a browser, it doesn't cost you really anything to replicate that for another customer. Obviously, there's some consideration for setup time and things like that. But in essence, you're making 90 to 99% profit on every new sale. And that's magical when you add it up over time. Super low cost of goods, I would say. Obviously, there's selling costs and things like that. But when you take a look at what value-based pricing, it's not looking at price based on complexity or based on the cost it is to deliver the software. Value-based pricing really means that as the customer benefits more, as they're able to generate more revenue or save more money, that you can adjust your price based on their perceived value. And perceived value is not something you can just you know, put on a dartboard. It is very specific to the type of software you're selling. If I go into a customer and I say, how much should I know, you're going to take like Microsoft Excel cost? Back when you know spreadsheets were first created, you could measure the time it would save to 
put something in a spreadsheet versus write it all down on a piece of ledger paper, right? It's days of time to do recalculations of budgets and things like that. The value to the company is time savings. So if you introduce software and say, look, you can use this as much as you want, every employee can use it. How much time are you going to save in employee man hours? You could reduce your staff by half. How much is that really worth, right? So you're starting out in a business discussion. You're not starting out with bits or, you know, the other way to come at it is from a manufacturer's perspective. I built you a car. It cost me X number of dollars for engine parts and Y number of dollars for tires. And then we had to assemble it and then we had to paint it. And then all those parts added up and we're going to just mark it up by 20% for a profit margin, right? The value, if you took a look at value-based pricing for cars, it would be, what would you normally spend on maintaining a horse and carriage to do the same thing, right? And you're valuing it based on someone's current experience doing solving the same problem in a manual way. Um, so the value is really in the eyes of the customer. And measuring that value can sometimes be very straightforward in time savings. But if you're producing revenue in any way, if you're contributing to revenue, it grows even more, right? So with Greenfly, we save a lot of time. We've got a workflow system. We're centralizing assets for our customers, which are sports customers, entertainment customers. And that's great that we're saving, you know, days a month from a social media team, digital marketing team's perspective. But when we tell the sponsorship team at a sports entity that they can get more sponsorship dollars because the media that we're creating is going out to more people, it's going out on the athlete social channels, it's going out on the broadcaster social channels, and all of that is creating more impressions for those sponsor logos, they go, wow, you're going to help us generate more revenue. Now we can start talking about much bigger prices. So if I can double my revenue and I go from 25 million a year in sponsorship to $50 million a year in sponsorship, I will pay you a million dollars for your software. Whereas before when you were a workflow solution, I would only pay you $50,000 a year for your software, right? So you can dramatically change the conversation with the exact same software if you're talking to the right people and talking about that value that you're providing. Now, when you get into a commoditized market, you have pretty heavy competition. It gets harder to prove value with the same basic feature function set, right? So once you're in, you know, you've got two or three competitors and you see that companies are doing comparisons and bake-offs all the time, it's very hard to do value-based pricing. You have to be competitively priced because you're really providing almost the same value as your competition is. But when you're a new company, new product, new entrepreneur, new product line, new functionality on your product, you can really take a value-based approach and go, how am I going to help transform this business? What problems am I solving and how much is that worth to them? And getting there is, is a little different. You have to do a lot of interviews. You have to interview people that aren't your customers. You have to like go on LinkedIn and contact people and say, hey, I've got some questions. You look like an expert in your industry. Can I ask you, how much time, money, dollars do you spend on this? How much revenue do you generate from this? And try and collect market intelligence that you can bring back to the company and go, I'm not making this up. I have evidence. Here are the 50 people I spoke to. It took me three weeks, but I spoke to 50 people that aren't our customers. And here's what they said. That's incredibly valuable. And that market research is a much overlooked part of marketing. And it's surprising how many entrepreneurs don't do that before they do anything with building out a product. They'll say, I've got this great idea because whatever and blah, blah, blah. And then did you test it? Did you figure out how much people will pay for it? Is it worth anything to them right now? Or is this a five 
five-year, 10-year thing in the future that they like, right? So they will ask their friends and family, but they won't ask really hard questions of people they don't know because, you know, one of the reasons is they don't want to hear no. They don't want to hear, I won't pay for that, right? Because they've got this dream, they've got this idea. So I see, you know, ostrich head in the sand quite a bit. Like it's really not going to work if that's the case. It's interesting. People, I I say, are you looking for compliments? Are you looking for constructive criticism, right? And putting that to people, because like you said, sometimes people are just going around like, look how great my product is or whatever. And they're not getting that real feedback too. I think I honestly believe value-based pricing is like a philosophy and understanding your value. Even if you're a marketer right now and you're working within an organization, understanding the value of your marketing work to the organization can better equip you for when you need to ask for more budget, when you want to raise, when you want to do things, you can go and be like, here's the value that our marketing produced. Not just, hey, I cost the company 73,000 in salary and 10 in healthcare. No, like go and say, here's what I did. Here's what I produced and here's how it helped the business. I think that mindset just helps so much for like a framework, not only outwardly, but inward as well. So I wanted to leave on that one. Tom, before I let you go, one, this has been awesome. To let people know, where can they connect with you online and learn more about Greenfly? So I am on Twitter occasionally at TomCore, T-O-M-K-U-H-R. I'm on LinkedIn, also TomCore. Pretty easy to find me there. So connect, say hi on Twitter. I check it once in a while. That's definitely the best way to get a hold of me. Amazing. And I'll put links to Tom's LinkedIn and Twitter in the show notes page so you can go and connect with there. I'll also put a link to the Greenfly website. Tom, thank you so much for coming on today, man. I appreciate it. Awesome. Great being here. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Shelton, and I'll catch you next time. Um.